Where you going? No, man, you got the right classroom. Come on in, take a seat beside me, my friend. Hey, look, here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say. It's Froggy Friday, and you're watching The Road to Concord <laughs> ribbit, with ribbit. Professor Joe Bakanovic. Homeroom is on Rumble. You just go to Rumble and you search the channels for The Road to Concord. It's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you click follow. Might mean you got to set up an account, but it's fast, it's easy, it's free. I did it, you can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, and sometimes on YouTube. That's actually today. Um, you can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify, and hopefully BitChute. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page, that's roadtoconcord.com. That's where you find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at the road to .com. I think he's actually caught up at the moment, so, uh, you know, slam him during the holidays so he has plenty to do. Uh, phones are on today, but, you, but only for registered numbers. We only accept calls from regular known classmates. If you wish to call in and are a regular classmate, you can request access through an email, and I'll think about it. If you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. And I just warn them, Joe is an acquired taste. This show is listener-sponsored, meaning we do not solicit business advertising, so we're not limited in the content we provide for y'all. With that said, we do ask for your participation on a value-for-value -value basis. If you find our show of value to you, then you provide an equivalent portion of your labor and treasure through the donut link, on the Road to Concord blog donuts? page, the show description on Rumble, and in the comments on the other streams. Where are the donuts? Hey, we all know T.A. Charlie isn't all there. <laughs> this makes yeah, not his presence. Just stay seated and give it a chance. <laughs> you soon realize we not might be the smartest, but we each independently form opinions Sorry. based on reason and logic. We're free thinkers. <laughs> Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. So it's the, the 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 donut king and his class of mixed nuts. Is that what this is now? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Good morning, folks. Um, little housekeeping real quick. This will be the last show we do of 2023. Uh, we were hoping to do replays next week. If you have not heard yet, the... Uh, the studio won't allow that. Um, so, hey, we won't be back until, I think Charlie said the second. It's Tuesday, day after New Year's. Um, and then it's a teaching Tuesday, but we'll be doing things just a little bit different when the New Year comes. And um, I don't know what's going to happen between now and then. But one thing I can guarantee you, um, we will be talking about Trump in the uh, election. Um <laughs> in all this legal wrangling and maneuvering, trying to keep him off the ballots. So um, hang in there. Uh, that'll come as soon as the, the year starts. Um, today, what we're doing is, um, you know, it's fallacy Friday. <laughs> Charlie did it. He's screwing up in the comment section. Um, this is the day we would normally take this talk about logic. And, and we're going to, but um, we're going to wrap up a short little series I've been doing. Charlie and I, for those of you who have not heard yet, we're working on writing a book. Um, our congregation loosely belongs to what the uh, traditional church calls the Hebrew Roots Movement. It, it largely, you know, 
we'll cover that in a minute. If you don't know what it is, we'll, we'll cover that in just a second. But um, we've been looking into the issues and the, the, the objections that the traditional church has to the Hebrew Roots Movement and examining them against the scriptures, trying to make sure that we are not in error, best to our ability to figure this stuff out, using this primarily the scriptures as our guide, as our rule book. And I have come to realize that a lot of the traditional church's objections are fallacious um, and you know, fallacies, problem in their logic. So this is the subject we're using today. And, and what you're going to see today is essentially it's a Cliff Notes version of the book we're working on. We're going to write a book about this and offer it up to, to the body of believers and hopefully bring a little clarity to this issue. But we'll see. So let's just jump into here. Um, this first section here today, these first few slides, if you were here last week, this is going to be a review for you. But, you know, the nature of what we're doing here and how it works, this is for those of you who may not have uh, seen the last show. Um, if you go to Rumble, there's a, in the description page, it'll tell you the shows that you need to catch up on. So what is the Hebrew Roots Movement? Well, well before we begin, Orthodox Jews and the majority of those who call themselves Messianic believers object to the label of the Hebrew Roots Movement henceforth HRM. Therefore, out of deference to the sensibilities of our Jewish and Messianic brethren, we will be excusing them from the focus of our discussion, so we're not talking to them today, although they're not exactly as innocent here as they might think they are. So what is the Hebrew Roots Movement, real quick, as a review? The primary problem here is that the traditional church cannot give an accurate definition of what it calls the Hebrew Roots Movement, not a definition that encompasses all of the church's objections, which would also be, you know, in a definition that would be accepted by the majority of these groups. Um, so without such a definition, any discussion about the Hebrew Roots Movement runs the very li likely risk of running a, uh, becoming a straw man attack, a fallacy. And you're going to find that today, that a lot of what these objections are, they're, they're straw man. Therefore, for the purposes of this class, we would like to suggest the following. Our proposed working definition the Hebrew Roots Movement is a populist movement spanning all Bible-believing denominations, uh, Jew, Messianic, Christian alike. It is layperson-led and has a common focus on reclaiming, as much as is possible, the original first century or Hebrew as opposed to Greek thinking, uh, first century understanding of our faith. So basically, get back to the Church of Acts. So what is the Church's objection to the Hebrew Roots Movement? The short answer to this question as far as we understand it, would seem to be a general feeling that the traditional church, that the Hebrew Roots Movement, of the, the traditional church thinks the Hebrew Roots Movement is a heretical cult seeking to draw believers back under the Mosaic law, legalism. And that's where this, this comes from here, this meme. It says the Hebrew Roots is it's a bunch of Jewish fables. Hebrew Roots is a heretical cult that takes believers away from Christ back into bondage, Followers are taught to keep the Torah, which brings them under the curse of the law, for nobody was ever saved by the law, for it requires perfect obedience. Much like the Pharisees, these modern Judaizers will be judged for their hypocrisy. Do not give heed to Jewish fables. If these objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement are valid, then the visible church is correct in its assessment of the Hebrew Roots Movement as being heretical. If the objections are not valid, then the church is guilty of making blanket, blanket ad hominem attacks or straw man or other fallacious attacks. Therefore, the question at hand would seem to be, are the visible church's objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement supported by sound interpretation of scriptures? Well, since we're doing a quick review, 
what constitutes a sound interpretation of the scriptures. Here again, we have to nail down the definition of sound interpretation so we can be assured that we are working from a common understanding of the language we are using. This will ensure that our discussion is as clear as possible while at the same time, it will help us avoid the fallacy of equivocation, which is when we use the same word to mean two different things. To this end, we would like to suggest another definition. Proposed working definition of you know, sound interpretation. We submit that sound interpretation of scripture is an understanding that recognizes the scriptures were written for us, but not to us. Meaning that to properly interpret the scriptures, we must take the following into account that the ancient Near East Hebrews thought differently than we do, that this is this different thinking is reflected in their language and culture, that the scriptures should interpret themselves, that scripture will not and does not contradict itself, and that the New Testament is founded upon the Old Testament teachings. And we have a point of order here real quick. We do not and cannot speak for the Hebrew Roots Movement as a whole. What we propose to do in this class is speak as members of a group which the traditional church would label as Hebrew Roots Movement, whereas we are a congregation, our, our congregation that Charlie and I and all are a member of, we would object to being painted with by this broad brush. You know, we, we don't like that. So therefore, the following reflects the road to Concord's opinion, nothing more. Also, unless otherwise stated, all scripture citations that you're going to get today are going to come from the NASB translation. One last point of order before we get going. We'll be calling out specific fallacies in the church's objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement. However, in doing so, we are assuming the church's obligation you know, applies to the church's obligation to make their point applies to those Hebrew Roots Movements groups movement uh, Hebrew Roots Movement groups to which the specific objection is aimed. In other words, since the Hebrew Roots Movement is just a loose collection of groups, rather than thinking that the church's objection applies to all of them, which would make it, you know, a, a hasty generalization, that's that's a fallacy. We're going to say the church's objections only apply to the groups in question. That that's That's grace to the traditional church's objections. That's putting it in their best light. All right. So with all that being said, let us get going. Last week, what we did is um, we covered just general problems. Today, we're going to look at some doctrinal issues. And again, we're using this book, the Twistomatic Theology, as a uh, as a guide for us. This this one here. There's several books that are written um, by members of the traditional church that object to the Hebrew Roots movement in general, but this one seems to be um, probably the best foundation for this for our purposes. So we we're using the complaints listed in here um, as our guide. <clears throat> so here's the, all of that was just a review. Here's where we're going to start today. Bring out our logic, because that's what we're actually doing. We're going to look at logic, okay? One of the objections in the book here, and, it, and I find this objection in a great many of the books written about this, and there are not a whole lot of them. There are less than a dozen books on this subject so that I can find. So one of the main objections in all of these books, the church's objection to the Hebrew Roots Movement. Some Hebrew Roots Movement groups have removed the deity of Christ the church contends that Christ is Yahweh in the flesh, and to say otherwise is blasphemy. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the actual, the Hebrew Roots Movement's actual position, whether they represent the typical Hebrew Roots Movement group is questionable, but in any case, we at the Road to Concord find that this objection has merit. We have found some Hebrew Roots Movement groups, some groups, not the movement, some groups have, as a matter of fact, 
appeared to have removed the deity of the Messiah or questioned his deity. Okay, so to that extent, this is what we answer to the objection. What we found from the Hebrew Roots Movement, the objection and what we found, here's our analysis of it. In this case, in this question, we side with the traditional church and stand opposed to those Hebrew Roots Movement groups which have removed the deity of the Messiah. Furthermore, we agree that those Hebrew Roots Movement groups that do remove the deity of the Messiah not only commit blasphemy, but their teachings are heretical as well. So the following passages are offered in support of our conclusion. Isaiah 43:11 I only I am Yahweh and there is no savior besides me. Well, you got to be saved by the name of Jesus. Isaiah 43:11 clearly says there's no savior besides Yahweh. So jump to John 8 verses 57 through 59. So the Jews said to him to Jesus you are not yet 50 years old and you have been uh, you have seen Abraham? It's a question they're mocking him. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am." Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and left the temple grounds. Charlie, pop yourself on here real quick. <laughs> what did Jesus just say, tell the Pharisees? I am Yahweh. That's exactly what he said. Before Abraham was born, I am. He was claiming the covenantal name of Yahweh, wasn't he? Yeah, and there's not a problem with that because what does his actual name mean? Yehoshua, Yahweh saves. So, Which is back to Isaiah 43.11. Which is back to 43.11. So. Do we need any more passages to settle this? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, this is... That's a that's an this old a, and new testament. This is witness. an open closed case. I mean, you could have a discussion of exactly what the Trinity means, or you know how you know he's Yahweh and Yahweh. We we could have those. Discussions, we could have that one, but, but as far as the matter is, as far as deity, uh, this this uh, slam dunk. Yeah. My, in my opinion, anyway. yeah, mine too. That's clear interpretation of scripture. There, this isn't this isn't figurative language here. I looked at the full context of Isaiah. There's no figurative language. There's no allegory here. These are both statements of fact in Scripture. So logically, that's all you're allowed to evaluate them as, statements of fact. And in both cases, what does it say in Isaiah? Only I. I am Yahweh. And then what does Yeshua say? I am. Okay. Thank you, Charlie. We will pop him in and out of here as we need him. And also in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua Messiah, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. So you're saved by the name of Yeshua, which means you're saved by Yahweh. Yahweh and Yeshua are one. By the Shem. Yeah, by the Shem. By the yes. Yes. The, yes. Hebrew idea of Shem meaning character, uh, reputation, um, nature. So <laughs> however you want to shake this one, Yeshua, 
Yahweh, one and the same. Not that they both, you know, two different people equal in, in their ideas and in the way. No, 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 no. They are the same. So same but different. How that works, I don't know. But that's not the question here. The next objection from the, the traditional church to the Hebrew Roots Movement. <clears throat> Some Hebrew Roots Movement groups claim that Jesus is actually the law in human form. This is the, the church believes that this is an exaggerated exaggeration bordering on twist the twisting of scripture. Scripture clearly states that Jesus was fully human, fully just a man, and that you know he's our savior and can't be just just somehow magical word supernatural made into law. You know, the law, all this mess. Jesus is not the law of Moses in the flesh. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but reading through this book and two others, all three can make this complaint. And all three tend to wave magic wands at this issue. They can't really quite seem to explain or define the objection here, but they don't like the idea that, you know, Yeshua, Jesus, same person, that he's the law. So in investigating this, the seems to be that the Hebrew Roots Movement's actual position is this. In investigation, we find that the Hebrew Roots groups do, as a matter of fact, for most part, assert that Yeshua is the word of Yahweh in human form. Not all, like I said, some of these groups question the deity of the Messiah and all this stuff. But for the most part, most of the Hebrew Roots Movement groups that we're aware of or the teachings we've run into that we've been able to find and read where, where the doctrine is laid out, they do seem to think that, you know, the scripture says that Yeshua is the word of, of Yahweh. That, you know, that's who Yeshua is. So we find this objection to be contradictory. The, the traditional church's objection is contradictory to the clear assertions of scripture. Therefore, we find this objection commits the fallacy of false assertion. The church is, is objecting by stating something that the scriptures do not say. It, it's basically a, a, a non sequitur, but it's still a fallacy. And here's the scriptures that we're going to offer in support of this. John 1, 1 through 5. This is fairly simple. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. So the Word meaning the whole Word or the whole counsel of Yahweh, you know, all of his decrees and ordinances and decisions and, you know, the whole, at, at this point, when John's writing, the Old Testament says he was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. And you have to understand what the word word means in Hebrew, because our Greek minds just mean, oh, that's just a word. No. No, 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 no. Torah. It is the mind and will of Yahweh. Yes. Made flesh. Yes. Because the, the next verse is people just read over and they don't pay attention. Who created all things in the beginning in Genesis? Yahweh, right? But right here, John's telling you Jesus did it. And where is the source of all life? According to Genesis, it's Yahweh. He breathes life into people, right? Well, according to this, it's Jesus. John is clearly telling you they're one and the same. So in John 1, jump into verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and called out saying, you know, you can read the rest of that. But the, the passage down at the bottom, though, 
said, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law still stands. It's just that the law is on stone tablets under Moses, but it's in the heart under Christ. Grace was always around. Grace has always been here. It's in the Old Testament. Grace is there, but that was not the covenant of grace. Grace is the tree of life. The law is the tree of knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil. We've covered this in a previous class. Go back last week when we do the two trees. So no one has seen God at any time. God, the only son who is the arm in the arms of the father, he explained him. So what we've got here is clear assertion in scripture that Yeshua is in fact the word of Yahweh made into the flesh. <laughs> Revelation 19 verses 11 through 13, the coming of Christ. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. His name is the Word of God, the Word. Yeshua is the living Word. Scripture says so. So when the church has a problem with the Hebrew Roots Movement saying that Yeshua is the living Word of God, I don't understand. But then again, I do. The problem here is if Jesus, the, the primary objection that the church is going to have is that the, what they think of as the law is still in place. They don't like that. The, tr the traditional church has been told the law is dead. It's been nailed to the cross. It's done away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we've been taught. But the Hebrew Roots Movement is going to argue something slightly different. Well, actually radically different. The problem is if Yeshua is the living Torah, then the, the traditional church is going to be faced with a problem that the Hebrew Roots Movement is closer to the truth of Scripture than they are. And they don't want to wrestle with the, with the changes in their theology that that will require. So in our opinion here at the Road to Concord, and Charlie, if I speak out of line for you, please chime in and correct me. But in our opinion here, Scripture says that Yeshua is the living word of, of, the, of Yahweh the Father. So the church has some, the traditional church has some rethinking to do here needs to be careful with where it goes with this because that's the way scripture reads. So the next objection we have here from the traditional church says that some Hebrew roots groups movements claim Hebrew roots movement groups. I'm going to, from now on for the purpose of this show, we're just going to say HRM groups claims that Torah is not the same thing as the law of Moses, but the traditional church says that's not what scripture says. Every book we have read so far claims that when the New Testament references the law, it's talking about the law of Moses. The traditional church does not see anything other than the law of Moses in the New Testament. There's going to be some serious problems with that, but the Hebrew Roots Movement's actual position seems to be, from our studies, the majority of HRM groups understand and teach that Scripture makes a clear distinction between the law of Moses and Torah. Okay, that seems to be 
where most Hebrew Roots Movement groups come down. There are a few of them that are, it's kind of vague. It's hard to tell. You can't nail them down when you ask them questions. But for the most part, that seems to be where they're at. So for us evaluating this here at the Road to Concord, we find this objection by the church to be contradictory to the clear assertion, excuse me, assertions of the scripture. Yeshua even tells us that Torah and the law of Moses are not the same things. Therefore, we find this objection commits the fallacy of false assertion. Here's the passage that we're going to offer. John 10, verses 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be nullified, are you saying of him that the Father sanctifies and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Okay, go back up to that part in yellow. Has it not been written in your law? The Greek says nomos. There's no other Greek word for law. In the Hebrew, it would say Torah. It's written in your Torah. But even if it doesn't, let's just say law. That's the law of Moses, Joe. No, it isn't. He's quoting Psalm 82. Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, and he calls it law. The only logical conclusion here is that Jesus is telling you that there is an understanding of law that is not the law of Moses. And Charlie has told us before, we've gone over this before, in the Hebrew mind, Torah means teaching, or in this case, the word of God. Those are equivalent concepts and thoughts. The word of God is Torah. Well, we just covered that. The word of God became flesh. Torah became flesh. Jesus is the living Torah. Not just the law of Moses. Law of Moses is part of Torah. Okay? Just a part. So when the church argues this way, they make a boo-boo. And I think the church actually knows this. So the Hebrew Roots Movement, whoops, Uh, Yep, that's just a duplicate slide. Sorry about that. Um, The church's objection to the Hebrew Roots Movement. Here's another objection that we have found. It says, HRM groups claim that the law of Moses is still in force and believers must keep it to be saved. Church says that Jesus did away with the law. Believers are no longer under any obligation to keep the law and to teach otherwise is to teach legalism, which the church thinks is a heresy. What best we can do with the understanding of the Hebrew Roots Movement? The majority of HRM groups assert that Torah is still in effect. Torah, whereas Torah is defined as the whole word of Yahweh, meaning old and new covenants. Therefore, Torah not being the law of Moses, which makes this part of the objection. uh, I don't know what the heck that is. Folks, I do these things late at night. I tried to proofread it this morning. It, It makes this the fallacy of equivocation. It's also straw man. However, There are some Hebrew Roots Movement groups that do seem to be asserting the law of Moses. Then, when you find those particular groups, we agree with the church, that would be a heretical position. That's the old covenant. It's been done away with. So you've got to pay attention to which group you're dealing with. To be gracious to and show grace to the the traditional church, just dealing with those groups that claim this, specifically that you're under the law of Moses, the church is correct. That's a false teaching. But if you find a Hebrew roots movement that's trying to tell you that, hey, the Torah is still in place, the Old Testament still stands, well, then the church is wrong. That's a fallacy. So to us, this is what we're answering. So I've already covered that. Um, This is a three-part objection here too, though. 
comment on the road to um, on the road to Concord on the board right here. JMW seventy eight. He says many believe that Yeshua is found in every book of the Bible. If they believe that, then shouldn't that mean that he is the law as well as all teachings in the Bible? Yes, correct. I would agree with that. Okay, to this last objection, the Hebrew Roots Movement groups, groups that claim that the law of Moses is still in force and believers must keep it to be saved, that's that's the church's objection. Our reply here is, having already corrected the false understanding that the law of Moses is being equal to Torah, keeping that in mind, the majority of HRM groups that we have investigated do not make that claim. They claim that Torah is in place, but not the law of Moses. Given that, we find that this part, this part of the church's objection is, is the fallacy of equivocation. They're using this you know, law, but they mean two different things. The church thinks all of it is just law, but the Hebrew Roots Movement realizes you got law of Moses and Torah are two different things. So that's equivocation. And when the traditional church wants to paint with that broad brush, they create a straw man fallacy. They're making an argument for the Hebrew Roots Movement groups that those groups are not making. Your passage here is very easy. John 14, 21. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. So Jesus is telling you, you've got to keep his commandments going forward. Well, how do we know that? First John for, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Well, this is after the ascension. So keeping Jesus's commandments are one and the same. They go boom to do boom to do boom. Now I'm, I'm going to real quick. I don't know. Don't remember if this is in the slideshow. I put it together late last night. My brain's a little jello. The traditional church would come along and say, no, 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 no. You don't have to keep the law of Moses. Jesus changed it. Now you got to keep the law of Jesus. Who is Jesus? We've already ascertained he is Yahweh. We know that Yahweh does not change. We've already covered yet yeah, earlier when we were doing uh, syncretism this week. The word of Yahweh is the same. To, Jesus is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. Well, Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't change. The word doesn't change. Da 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 da. So when the church says Jesus did away with the law of the Father and instituted the law of the Son, the church commits a fallacy. There is no law of Jesus apart from the law of Yahweh. They're the same. So if you're going to say Jesus created a whole new law, you're breaking scripture, clear scripture. So the church is wrong there as well, but that, that's a different subject. All we've got right here so far, <laughs> the Torah is still in place and we're still bound to keep it. Romans 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, before Yahweh, but the doers who will be justified. What? I thought Romans told us that the law is done away with. That's not what Paul just said. And I've been told you got to read Paul clearly in plain language and just take him at face value. Okay, fine. He just said you got to obey the law. How can you obey something that was done away with? So if I if I have to, and we'll bring this up again, it's in the slideshow if we get to it. If I have to read Paul in plain language and take him at face value, Paul contradicts himself and therefore he can't be a prophet. Or you've misunderstood Paul. Revelation 14, verses 12 through 13. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God. Wait a minute, I thought I had to keep the commandments of Jesus. Commandments of God, Jesus, that's because they're the same thing. And their faith in Jesus. 
I keep the commandments of the Father and my faith in his Son, who is the living word of the Father. And it says, and I hear a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Deeds, works, fruit. I thought works wasn't part of this salvation thing. Uh, maybe we misunderstood something, you think? So we do find the church's objections here to this part to be a fallacious. Now, part two, the church says Jesus did away with the Torah. This part of the traditional church's objection rests upon how Scripture is interpreted. If we read it through the lens of the traditional church's doctrine, this assertion can be made, but only by twisting Scripture and ignoring contradicting passages. However, if we read Scripture as a Torah-observant Hebrew would, then this objection is a false assertion. Therefore, we find the objection to be equivocation and positional fallacy. Positional fallacy is you have to interpret it their way. Well, if you do that, it's already fallacious because you have to omit the um, information like we just said. So either way you want to go, this part of the traditional church's objection is a fallacious objection. Uh, scripture in supporting our conclusion, John 12, 34. The crowd then answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how is it that you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? How does that help, Joe? Well, this is easy. The Torah is eternal because the Messiah is eternal. The Messiah lasts forever. Messiah is Torah in the flesh. So if you've done away with Torah, if Christ, the Torah was nailed to the cross, yeah, the verbal a law of the Pharisees were nailed to the cross with the flesh of the son, who is the Torah in the living flesh. So both were nailed to the cross, the false law plus the living law. But it didn't do away with the law. The law isn't dead. The law isn't a curse. The curse is what happens when you don't obey the law, but that you can still find salvation living under the law and breaking it. You want proof? Go look at David. We've misunderstood something, so the church has committed a fallacy in its reasoning here. It is cherry-picking scripture, and in the process, it's getting itself sideways. This passage right here clearly tells us, we've heard from the law, the whole word of God, of Yahweh, that the Messiah is to remain forever. So how are you going to, how, how can you be Messiah if you're going to be lifted up? Well, what part did they miss? He's going to leap back up and remain forever, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the living Messiah, not the dead Messiah. So the people didn't understand any better than the congregation of the, the, the traditional church does today. They're still blind to the same thing. Also, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, we've all read this. Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, in this case, that's the law of Moses, the Pentateuch or the prophets, the last books of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament. So do not presume that I came to abolish the Tanakh. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. See, Joe, he fulfilled it. No, 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 no. The Greek there means I am the end of the law. I'm the point of the law. I came to correct it, to explain it, to live it correctly, to show you how to do this. It says, for I truly say to you, how do I know that's the proper? Keep reading. 
This is the context. He's setting up the context for what comes next. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So until it all passes away, and we've already read another passage that says Jesus remains forever, Messiah remains forever, so the Torah is not passing away until all is accomplished. Well, yeah, Joe, he said it's finished on the cross. No, 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 no. Has he returned? Have all prophecies been fulfilled? No. Has the whole kingdom been returned back to the Father? No. So that's a misunderstanding of this passage. He's saying something else. Where's the explanation for what he's really saying? Read the next verse. Therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness is obedience to the Torah. So if your obedience doesn't surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not entering the kingdom. Well, Joe, that's just up until the cross, and that's not what he's saying. Kingdom. That's that's into the eternity for here and forever. He's talking about after the cross, folks. The context of that passage right there clearly tells you Torah still stands. Comment from Aaron Spikes. The church doesn't totally understand why he had to die. All they see is individual salvation. Correct. That's part of the problem. Objection three. The church will say that believers are no longer under any obligation to keep Torah. To teach people they must obey Torah to be saved is to teach legalism, which is a heresy. We find this objection commits the fallacy of straw men and equivocation and false assertion. The church has got this one just all wrong because it will not read the scriptures. In this case, the Hebrew Roots' actual position for most of the HRM groups that we've read, the majority of them understand that one does not obey the law to gain salvation. Scripture clearly teaches that salvation is by faith, by grace through faith. However, most HRM groups understand that the Hebrew concept of faith is a verb, meaning it's something you, that one does. We do not obey the law to earn salvation, but rather we guard the law to show ourselves approved. We uphold it, we guard it, we preserve it, we stand watch over it. By this, they mean, the HRM groups mean that we show our faith by training ourselves to obey the word of Yahweh and that this will play a part in our final judgment. Passages that the scripture that help us support this, Romans 2, 6 through 8, who will repay each person according to his deeds? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-serving and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and indignation. Whoa, 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 whoa. What did Paul just say? According to their deeds? From the book of Romans, where the traditional church tells us Paul's doing away with the law? This is the second time in Romans we're told you have to keep the Lord's commandments. It's not how you get saved, but you will be judged according to how well you keep them. This is how many lashes you get, how many gems are in your crown or whether or not you get a crown at all. You, notice what Jesus said, least in the kingdom. Doesn't mean you won't get into the kingdom necessarily, but it will come at a cost and a penalty. Second Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear, whoa, 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 whoa. No, Christians don't get, we don't get judged for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's Paul, folks. 
the same Paul that the traditional church claims saying that this doesn't happen. We must be appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. But Paul tells you the wrath of God will not be on the believer who claims Christ. But you're still standing before the judgment seat. He just said that to be judged for your deeds. And then 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Okay, so we got Paul and Peter telling us that what you do has something to do with your condition in the in after judgment. That's works, right? Well, that's teaching legalism. No, that teaches that you don't understand something, traditional church. You're missing something. Go back and redo this work. You're on milk still. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm telling you you're drinking milk. And if Paul were around, he'd tell you by now you should be on tough meat. Now, this little book. I'll read this to you in just a second, but I want you to see just how small this book is. Look at that. For the most part, the part that you need to read on this thing, it's what, what 58 pages? It's a little book here. It's cheap. Get it on Amazon. Go get it. If you doubt me, go, go get this. This says, has the law been nailed to the cross? Is there a conflict between the law of the Old Testament and the gospel of the New Testament, the Torah of the Old Testament? This is a... Stephen J. Spikerman, it's Masonic believer. Unless and until the traditional church provides sufficient scriptural rebuttal to the argument presented in this little book and explains why and how all of the passages that this, this book cites in support of its argument are being misinterpreted, the church's objection to the claim that Torah stands has been scripturally defeated. What did I just say? What I'm saying is unless the church can go through here and show me how every passage that Spikerman cites in support of his argument has been misinterpreted by Spikerman, using scripture to show me how he's misinterpreted it, the church has been defeated in its objection. It is wrong. Scripturally defeated. The word of Yahweh has told the church, go back, start in kindergarten, you missed it. Very well worth your time. Crucial to those of us that call ourselves by his name. Another objection from the traditional church claims that HRM groups claim that Christians do not understand Paul correctly, citing Peter's warning that Paul teaches things that can be difficult to understand. The church says that Paul is easy to understand. He writes in plain language, and he said the law is dead. We are not under the law, and the law of the Jew does not apply to the Gentiles. Therefore, the Hebrew Roots Movement group, HRM groups, they're teaching the law, legalism. It's wrong. They're heretics. As best we can understand, the majority HRM group's position on this issue is that having discarded or deliberately refused to study and then read the scriptures from a Torah-observant perspective, Christians cannot understand Paul. They are reading him through the wrong lens. That's the majority of the Hebrew Roots Movement. Now, some Hebrew Roots Movement people, people reject Paul. Well, that's okay. Some Christians reject Paul. We're not addressing them. It says, we do not hear 
our conclusion on this, we do not understand this objection by the traditional church, as this is exactly what Peter said. What's more, many lifelong students of scripture and the of the scripture and the church's history believe Peter's letter was specifically referencing the book of Romans when he issued this warning. Now, if that's true, even if it's close to true, we find this objection commits the fallacy of straw man and false assertion. The passage supporting this is right here. Second Peter chapter three, starting in verse 14, 16. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless by him at peace and regard the patience of your Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things, which these are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, and they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Hold on just a second, please. Sorry about that. Okay, you can read Peter one of two ways. Peter can be read saying that the church has this right and the Hebrew Roots Movement's wrong. Peter can also be read saying that the Hebrew Roots Movement has this right, the church is wrong. Which one is correct? Well, we've already got Paul telling us in several places that the law is good, it's holy, and you have to keep it, and you'll be judged according to your deeds. We got Jesus and the apostles running around saying, repent, 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 repent from what? If the law is gone, what do you repent from? Well, the law of Christ is the new law. No, no, you can't repent from the law of Christ. Church, you just, traditional church, you just told me that's grace. You don't have to worry about anything when you're under grace. You can't repent from grace. So what do you repent from, traditional church? Whoops. Traditional church, your objections are fallacious. Hebrew Roots Movement, you may disagree with it, but it is in line with Scripture. It doesn't create contradiction. It doesn't create bad doctrine. It does seem to align with the whole of the scriptures. I see no contradiction in it. Therefore, their argument's not fallacious. It seems to be sound, it seems to be valid, and it seems to be rational. The church's objection are neither sound nor valid, therefore are irrational. I'm going to have to side with the Hebrew Roots Movement using nothing but logic, which tells me that the traditional church needs to get back to the scriptures on this issue. They are on milk at best. And this should, by rights, scare the bejeebers out of them. But they're stuck on the traditions of men, just like the Pharisees. Another little book. Again, I want to show you this one. It's a little book. It's not all that big. It's a little longer than the other one. It's only like five bucks on Amazon. You can go to 119 Ministries and watch the videos on this. I am going to warn you. 119 Ministries can be a very good source, but they are one of the Hebrew Roots movements that do tend toward legalism, in our opinion. Be very discerning with what they do. However, in the case of this book, this is probably their shining glory. 119 Ministries crushes this one out of the park. Grand slam. So unless and until the traditional church provides sufficient scriptural rebuttal to the arguments presented in this book and explains why and how all of the passages they cite in support of their arguments are being misinterpreted, the church's objections to the claim 
that Christians misinterpret Paul has been scripturally defeated. What do I mean by that? You'll have to read this to understand it, but they show you a different way to read this, Paul's letters, a Torah observant way to read Paul's letters, which is important because Paul tells you that's how to read his letters. Paul tells you that in his letters. Paul tells us that he teaches Gentiles to keep the Torah. In his letters, he does do this. So if you think I'm wrong, get yourself through that book. Then come talk to me. But you better bring scriptural, sound interpretation of scriptural um, passages and understanding that refutes their thinking here. I, I think you're going to find it's going to be very difficult to do. One more here from the church's objection to the Hebrew roots movement. The church, the traditional church claims that HRM groups claim Christians are lawless. So the church objects saying this is a heresy. Christians are no longer under the law of Moses, but the grace of Christ to teach. Otherwise is to teach works, which is a heresy. Church would also say in, in this book here, and two others, and I don't know, Charlie, about the book you read, but this author keeps saying, I'm under the law of Christ, I'm under the law of Christ, and it's different than the Old Testament Torah. Um, I've got several author, authors that are writing that. I've already addressed this. The law of Christ is the law of the Father. They're one and the same because they are Yeshua and the Father. They're all somehow one. In order for Christ to teach a different law from the Father, that's a house divided. What did Jesus say about a house divided? So it does not stand. So he's, and he also says, I only tell you what the father tells me to tell you. So essentially the church is telling me Jesus came and lied to me. Well, then he's not the Messiah, is he? Concept, concept is important, folks. We've got to pay attention to concepts sometimes. Not just words and verse studies and word studies. So that's the church's objection. We looked at this. The Hebrew roots, HRM groups, most of them, not all, there are outliers, but the majority position seems to be on this issue seems to be that the church, having rejected Torah, is following the teachings and traditions of men and not Yahweh. In, in other words, the HRM groups, the Hebrew Roots Movement, sees the Christians as modern-day Pharisees. Now, the problem is a great number of these groups tend to lean in the other direction back into legalism and they chase after Orthodox Judaism. The problem with that is Orthodox Judaism is not following the, the law of Moses. As much as it thinks it is, it's not. It's following something it created on its own. So Orthodox Judaism is doing pretty much the same thing that the Northern Kingdom did. It's, it's making up its own religion. Yahweh frowns on that. So for us, looking at this particular issue about Christians being lawless, we find this objection to have several problems. First, it is fallacious in that it attempts to frame the church's position in such a way that it's correct by default. But it, that's a fallacy. But it also, more importantly, the objection is definitively false in itself by according to Scripture. By disregarding the Scripture's definition of Torah and inserting its own, the traditional church has demonstrated its lawlessness by definition. It's 2 Thessalonians 2. Passages that hold this up. Romans 2.13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law 
who will be justified. Okay? If you're a Christian and you don't have to obey the law, the Torah, that makes you lawless. You're not a doer. You won't be justified, according to Paul, back in Romans. Romans 4, 2 through 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God he can. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, the wages are not credited as favor, but as what is due. So what is Paul telling us? You're still saved by grace, and you get that grace through faith. But you show your faith by your trusting faith. You act on it. It's still a work. And that's what Romans 2.13 blends with Romans 4. This is what James is talking about here in 122. Prove yourself doers of the word, not just hearers who deceive themselves. Show your faith by your fruits, through your works. So this all works together. And the Christian who thinks they're no longer under the Torah is showing themselves to be lawless. Again, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It says, therefore, who you know the first part. But he says, therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the church, the traditional church teaches people they don't have to keep those commandments anymore. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Hebrew Roots Movement is trying to teach people, you got to keep the commandments, the ones that still apply. Jesus says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness, your obedience, far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not earning your entry into the kingdom of heaven. Your faith will lead to that obedience. James, the strength of your faith will cause you to obey. Do you have a saving faith? The church's objection to the HRM claims that the law being written on our hearts, this is the last one before the break, another objection, says that the law being written on our hearts is a way of showing that we're still under the law. The law didn't go anywhere. It just goes from the tablets to your heart. So once again, the church will say, Jesus did away with the law and replaced it with grace. This means that the love of Christ and the Holy Spirit live in our hearts and tell us what to do. So the church would object that the HRM groups making the claim that the law in your heart proves the Torah is still there are misinterpreting scripture. The best we can determine that the HRM group's actual positions, the majority of them is, that the new covenant moves the law from the cold dead stones to the living flesh of our hearts, just like scripture says, and thereby making it possible for us to keep Torah by making us want to keep Torah. And the Holy Spirit will amen, amen that and make you cry, Abba, Father, make you thirst for righteousness, which is obedience to the Torah. That's all scripture. So when we look at this, we we think that the traditional church's objection, they're objecting to something other than what the Hebrew Roots Movement groups believe, the most of them. This means that the church's objection commits the fallacy of equivocation and straw man. Equivocation because the church doesn't actually understand what it's objecting to. Straw man, because it's creating an objection and shoving it into the mouth of the HRM groups. Jeremiah 31, 33 should make this clear. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. His law, 
Old Testament, my Torah, in their heart. Well, no, Jesus puts the his new covenant in, in the love of Christ and the Messiah and grace in our heart. So church, I'm sorry, but if you're going to claim that, I, I apologize, folks, I got to have a cough drop or I'm going to die and my wife's going to kill me. Being a speech therapist, if she hears this show, I'm in trouble because I'm over stressing my voice, but the show must go on. So um, the church, I don't mean to be ugly to you, but I'm calling you to repent of your misunderstandings. The scripture is clear on this. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, Yahweh is saying he's going to put his Torah, and I have looked this up several times. It says Torah. The Hebrew says Torah. I will put my teachings in the heart of the believer in the new covenant. I'll write it on their heart. He does not say my grace. He does not say my son's law. He doesn't say the Messiah's law. He says my Torah. So when the son comes and says, I will only command you to do that which the father tells me to tell you, that's the father's Torah. So when the church says Jesus gives us a new law, because, you know, they're reading Paul at his word, the law of Christ, they think that that's a whole new law. That is not what Paul said. Peter told you to be careful with Paul. You can easily misunderstand him and the rest of Scripture to your own destruction. <laughs> yes, and Jimmy Zinker's being a funny one. He says, you're going to die and your wife is going to kill you? I'm going to be death by wife. <laughs> Excuse me. So we're going to go to break here in just a second. We'll, we'll pick up where we left off here. Folks, I, I know, and I'm going to say this over and over and over again. You are saved by faith in the Father and the Messiah, Father and Son. A faith that, get, that will find favor, his favor, which we call grace. The Hebrew calls it favor. You show your faith through your works. And when the Father sees that, you find favor in his eyes. He extends grace. You have not earned anything. You cannot put the Father, the Creator, in debt to you. The church's idea that you can, you know what, folks? Let me put it to you simple. The church seems to think that the old covenant was about working your way to heaven. And that if you kept the law perfectly, you could get to heaven. If that is the case, and every, every traditional church author I have read so far, and I don't know, Charlie, the one you read that I haven't, that might be different, but every author I've read so far interprets the law as you must keep it perfectly to be saved. Because they're reading Paul and some of the other apostles. Well, here's the problem. If that's the case, Nobody in the Old Testament was saved. Nobody. Well, they might argue, well, you weren't saved until after Jesus died. And then he went to Sheol and he preached the gospel and they accepted it. So now they're saved. The problem with that is Jesus himself tells you that Abraham saw him and was happy to have seen his day. Jesus is telling you why he is still alive, that Abraham was already saved. Whoops. Folks, you have always been saved by grace. The law was never meant to save you. The law is meant to teach you right from wrong. You show your faith through your obedience. It has always been that way. 
which is how the sinner David could be said to be a man after Yahweh's own heart. Because he saw the law, saw his own actions, and repented of his actions, and went back to the law, and sought forgiveness to reunify his relationship with Yahweh. You don't earn anything. You never have, and you never will. Yahweh saves you of his own accord. You have to trust in him to do this. But you must show that trust. The demons have faith in the Messiah. They know he's real. They don't have a faith that leads to trust and obedience. They're in rebellion. The scriptures are clear on this. I do not understand why the church has such a hard time with it. It's in the Bible. Read it. It's right there. Six-minute break. We come back, we'll pick up. We got some more. This is all logic. I know that the issue may not interest a lot of people. It should. It should, especially if you call yourself by his name. See you in six.
All right, real quick before we get going, I just want to apologize to you folks. I, I know my voice is bad. I know I'm having trouble coughing. I, I, I know it's rude, especially in this medium. And I do apologize. But I have been struggling with, it, it's just a common cold. That's all it is. It's not COVID. It's not the, I have just had common cold this week. Okay. All the normal remedies for a cold have been working, but it has had a. And he probably got it from me. Yeah. And I've had an effect on, on my voice. So I apologize. Comment on the board from JMW 78. He says, faith is action. So is love. How do we show our faith and love for the father, but through our actions? Exactly. Exactly. Then the church likes to talk about love one another, but what it's talking about is a feeling, not an action. And that's that's a Greek way of looking at it, not Hebrew. Well, the whole point of the Hebrew roots movement is get back to reading scriptures as a Torah observant Hebrew. That's the primary, you know, anyhow. <laughs> the next objection we have today, we're going to get back on this because we, we still got a ways to go here today, folks. The church's objection to the Hebrew roots movement, this another one from the traditional church, is that HRM groups claim that the law of Moses applies to all believers, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul and the Council of Jerusalem were clear on this point. The law of the Jew does not apply to the Gentiles. <sighs> as near as we can tell, the majority of HRM groups seem to understand that Paul never taught against Torah. We've all noticed, folks, we've already covered. It's not the law of Moses. Most our HRM groups that I've encountered know that the law of Moses is the old covenant and that we're under the new covenant. Charlie, what's that? The Brit Hadash? Brit Hadashah. Brit Hadashah. New covenant, renewed covenant or whatever. Okay, thanks, Charlie. Um, so put that behind us. We've already covered this law of Moses thing. The, the, the traditional church doesn't understand we're dealing with two different things. There's only one Greek word, nomos. So it, it can be confusing, especially when you're dealing with Paul. So what we're looking at is most HRM groups know that Paul is telling you you're under Torah and that Paul never teaches against Torah. And, and he clearly states, and if you go look in the book of Acts, he tells you he teaches Gentiles to keep Torah. He does. He says that in the book of Acts. And what's more, the Council of Jerusalem was about the four things Gentiles had to do so that the Jews would allow them in the synagogue where they could learn the Torah. What? Yeah, it wasn't about the four things Jews had to do to be right with Yahweh. I want you to understand something here real quick. You know what? Hold on a second. We'll get to that in a minute, real fast. This is what we answer to this objection. Once again, the church is objecting to something it does not understand. It's putting a false argument into the mouths of the HRM groups in the process. We find this objection to be committing the fallacy of equivocation and straw man as a result. All right, we'll get to the passages of the scripture in a minute. Here's something I want y'all to understand real clear. If the only four things that the Gentile had to do was abstain from those four things, you know, no eating of blood, no sexual immorality, et cetera, no strangling animals, et cetera, et cetera, those four things, that's legalism. What? Yeah, you have to do these four things to be saved. That's legalism. So when the church says, you're not under the law or legalism because of grace, and but you got to follow these four things. Congratulations, you just fornicated for chastity. That's legalism. You're saying there are four laws you have to obey. Which, by the way, all four of them are in the law, the Torah of the Old Testament. What? Yes. In other words, the church, in objecting to the idea of keeping the Torah, quotes 
Torah. And the church says, I don't have to obey Torah. I just have to obey Torah. That is literally what's going on. If you get all the camouflage out of the way, that's what's going on here. Now, does that seem like it works for you? That is such a messed up logic right there that there's no fallacy I can explain for that one other than it is just a straight-up self-contradicting statement which leads to absurdity. In programming, we call that circular logic. Yeah, well, in this case, it would be a contradictory statement from a contradiction all things follow. It's by definition a contradiction is irrational. It's an absurdity. Let's go to this passage, Acts 15, verses 19 through 21. It is therefore, it is my judgment that we do not call, this is uh, James talking, I believe, that we do not cause trouble for those from the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from acts of sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has those who preach him in every city since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody read, they stop right there after verse 20. They don't want to read 21. What's going on? Do you have a study Bible? Have you ever read the notes before the chapter? What's going on here in Acts 15? It's actually in Acts, if you'll pay attention. The Jews and the Judaizers in the synagogue, now the Judaizers were not those trying to bring you back under the law of Moses, like a lot of Christians believe. The Judaizers were those trying to bring Christians back under the law of the Pharisees. Jesus never condemned the law of Moses. He condemned the law of the Pharisees, the oral Torah that they added to. Remember, Moses says, don't add or subtract from my law. The Pharisees did that. Jesus condemns them for that. That's the Judaizers. So what's going on is the, the new believers are wanting to come to the synagogue to learn the Torah where Moses is being read, the Torah, the Pentateuch. They want to get into the synagogues, but the Judaizers will not let them in because they're quote-unquote unclean. And, and they're doing things that the, the Jews just revile. They can't, they can't deal with it. So what's going on here at the council? They're actually saying, if you'll do these four things, that should be enough because that's going to keep you in line with the law, the Noahide laws. The Jews will let you in. That's what this is all about. It is not doing away with the law. It's not saying, well, these are the four laws you have to keep because that's going to be legalism by definition. What's going on here in this passage, if you will read it in its entirety, in full context, you know, several paragraphs before and after, that's what's going on. And he even says so. That's, the, that's that last sentence I highlighted for you. For from ancient generations, Moses has those who preach him in every city. In other words, there's a synagogue in every city since he is read in those synagogues every Sabbath. This is about making sure that the new believers can get into the synagogues where they can study the word and learn it. So the church objects to the Hebrew Roots movement here. It says HRM groups claim that believers need to keep the law to be sanctified. The traditional church will say this is not what Paul taught. Paul says that the law was nailed to the cross and we are under grace now. Believers only need to have faith in Christ. Christ sanctifies believers, not the law. That's been true in the Old and the New Testament, folks. That's, that's what grace is all about. But what is sanctification? It means to set you apart. We covered that this week in our syncretism class. Sanctification is setting you apart. 
how do you know how to be set apart without the Torah? Well, Christ will do it. Christ is the Torah. What? If you imitate the Messiah, you'll be following Torah. And that will sanctify you by setting you apart. It teaches you to obey. Obey. The actual HRM group position, as far as we can tell. It's difficult to determine the HRM position on this issue as a group. But it appears as though the majority of HRM groups see Torah obedience as the process of sanctification. As we learn to obey Torah and thus become more like the Messiah, we become more and more sanctified. In short, this is what Paul means by running our race to the end. So, to this objection we answer here again, the traditional church either does not understand the HRM group position, or it is creating a straw man argument for the HRM group, shoving it in their mouth. We find this objection commits, again, fallacies of straw man and equivocation. You're either creating a false argument and assigning it to your opponent, classic straw man, or you don't understand the position to which you're objecting. Either way, fallacious. Romans 6, 19 through 22. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. See, Paul's telling you this is difficult. For just as you present, present the body parts of your body as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your body parts as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Righteousness is following the law. It's obedience. Remember, before you were saved, you were a sinner. That's lawlessness. Now, after you're saved, you need to be a slave to not sinning, righteousness. How do you know what a sin is without the law? Can anybody answer me that? How do you know what a sin? Well, the Holy Spirit will tell me. The Holy Spirit will never tell you anything that the God objects to. He will always be. Remember what Jesus said? The Spirit will teach you what I and the Father tell it to say. They're not going to contradict themselves. That, that would make Scripture contradict itself. Scripture would be broken. So in other words, the Holy Spirit's going to teach you Torah. Well, how do you know it's Torah? You got to read the Torah to know whether or not what you think the Holy Spirit's telling you aligns with God's written word. That's righteousness. I mean, how is it that our pastors and preachers cannot teach this? This is very clear, and it's Paul in the book of Romans again. So verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. In other words, as long as you're happy with sin, you're free from the law. The law don't care. You're a sinner? Fine. You don't have to worry about what right and wrong is. You don't care. You're, you're happy with the sin. It says, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from things which you are now ashamed? Well, why would you be ashamed of them? Well, under the law, I now know, according to Paul, the, the law told me what was right and wrong. So now that I recognize the law, now that I have eaten of the tree of knowledge of right and wrong, I'm ashamed of what I did wrong. You've acknowledged you're a sinner. So Paul says, for the outcome of these things is death. Anybody who breaks the law, death is the requirement. That doesn't mean you can't be saved. You can still be saved and have to die. That's the whole point. It says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. The outcome, eternal life. What? Well, now you're ashamed of the things you used to do. You're ashamed of your sin. So you're not going to do that anymore. You're enslaved to God, God's word, God's Torah, God's way. And that's the benefit. The benefit is sanctification. Well, how the heck do you know what has to be done to be enslaved to the to God? You got to follow the word of God. Who's the word? Jesus. What's Jesus? Torah. Whoops. Any way you want to slice this or dice this, you keep coming back to Torah. 
You're not doing it to earn anything. You're doing it out of obedience in, in because you love him. That's it. You do it. You obey because he first loved you. That's it. It's simple, easy peasy. Next objection from the traditional church. It says, HRM groups claim that believers must keep the seventh day Sabbath and that Constantine changed the Sabbath to Sunday because of his former pagan beliefs. Ah, another mistype. Me in the middle of the night. I, I got to start doing these a day before and sending them to Charlie for, for editing. He's much better than me. It says, the church will say this is not true. It says, Christ moved the Sabbath to Sunday, the Lord's day. And the church would say, the traditional church says, even if he hadn't, under grace, believers are free to keep the Sabbath on any day they wish, or that the church has authority to move it. The Hebrew roots movement position, and most every group seems to keep this position. It's to be fairly clear here. The scriptures teach us that this keep the seventh day Sabbath and that the scriptures never authorized to move it or stop observing it. Having tr- investigated this, we find that the traditional church has either misunderstood the scriptures or it has embraced the notion that it has authority over scripture. Either way, we find their objection to be fallacious. It's factually incorrect. We find this objection has committed the fallacies of false assertion and an appeal to authority, in this case, the authority of the church. It is claiming to have authority over scripture. That's a dangerous place to stand, folks. Exodus 31, 12 through 14, sign of the Sabbath. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, now as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you must keep my Sabbath for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations so that you may know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to keep my Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it must be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from amongst his people. Now, the traditional church will say, yeah, Joe, but that's to Israel, not to everybody else now under the new covenant. This can't be to the nation of Israel. They're not in the land yet. This is to the people of Israel the spiritual nation that does not require a land to become a nation. This is spiritual Israel. Are you part of spiritual Israel? Because if you're not, you're not in the kingdom. And if you are, this applies to you. It says, well, Joe, everyone has to be put to death. Nobody gets put to death today. That's because of grace. Just being put to death doesn't mean you weren't saved. In other words, you must pay the penalty of the law. I got to kill you. You might still be saved. You might still make it to the kingdom, but you must be put to death. You got to pay the penalty of the law. Why do you not have to do that under the new covenant now? Christ paid that penalty. The penalty is still there. Under grace, you still have to die. He took your place. He died for you. Now, you're still going to die a physical death too, but now your spiritual death is different. Folks, if you're not looking at this as from Torah position of Genesis, You're not reading this from the, I mean, if you don't have Genesis under your belt, Exodus isn't going to make any sense to you. Not really. The church has this wrong. Amos 5, verses 21 through 23. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your festive assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fattened oxen. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your hearts. Okay, well, that that could be one of two things. 
that can be the festivals that you and I have created, Christmas, Christmas, Easter, Halloween, et cetera, et cetera. More than likely, this is when we pervert the feasts like uh, the Sumerians did, where we, like Aaron, we're going to have a feast to Yahweh and we're going to worship the bull. This is whenever you mix, this is either syncretism or apostasy. This is whenever you mix practices worshiping Yahweh that he did not command. How do we know? Read verse 24. But let justice roll out like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Righteousness, the obedience of Torah. So when you worship him on Sunday, I reject your day. Oops. He doesn't reject his days, folks. Not when we do it right. Because he says, those are my Sabbaths, my feasts, my holidays, my appointed times, mine. Yahweh claims them as his. He's not going to reject his when we do it his way. When we do it our way, that's when he rejects it. When we choose the tree of knowledge of right and wrong instead of the tree of life, when we choose our works over his grace, when we choose it our way over his, how do you know his way? Torah. Church has an objection. The traditional church says that Hebrew roots movement groups claim that we need to keep the Jewish feasts and that the Lord's Supper is a Passover supper. These things applied to the time before the cross, according to the church. Christ's crucifixion put an end to them. Paul said we no longer have to worry about what days we keep. Teaching otherwise is legalism. So the visible church thinks this is all a big mess with the Hebrew roots movement. This is another one where we think most Hebrew roots movements agree. Now, they may argue over when the days are, but they seem to understand that the feasts are part of the appointed times, the Sabbaths. And since scripture commands us to keep them through all our generations, we should still be keeping them. To which we answer, the traditional church has either misunderstood the scriptures or it has embraced the notion that it has authority over scripture. Either way, we find this objection to be factually incorrect. We find this objection commits the fallacies of equivocation, false assertion, and appeal to authority. It's still a mess. Exodus 23, verses 10 through 13. The Sabbath and the land. You and I have to keep the seventh day Sabbath. The land has a Sabbath of rest. We ignore that one too. And that cost the ancient nation of Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, greatly. It says, now you shall sow your land. This is verse 10. 2310, sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But in the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie uncultivated so that the needy of your people may eat and whatever they leave, the animal of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive guard grove. Verse 12, for six days, you are to do your work, but on the seventh day, you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female slave, as well as the stranger residing with you, may refresh themselves, as well as the stranger residing with you. Uh. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be careful, and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Folks, this is a natural law of rest for all of Yahweh's creation. Everything that lives rests every seventh day. Everything that does not live that's inanimate rests every seventh year. There is a rest. There's a cycle, a natural cycle. Yahweh's trying to get us to keep it. Now that passage there I outlined in yellow. Why? 
What's that got to do with anything? He's talking about Sabbaths. Oh, he doesn't want us to do idolatry. Folks, this is syncretism. In talking about my Sabbaths for the land and for you and your servants and your strangers, you know, your the stranger residing with you and for your animals, be careful not to mention other names of the gods nor let them be heard from your mouth. Don't mix the pagan practices of the nations and peoples around you with my ways. That's what's going on right there. The church needs to revisit this. Exodus 23, verse 14 through 17. Three national feasts. Oh, that national feast headline, that is not in your scriptures. That's a headline that we've put in there afterwards. It doesn't say national. All his people, no matter where they're at. So let's read this carefully because we know we're under the new covenant. It says, three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall keep the feasts of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in that month you came out of Egypt and no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Also you shall keep the feast of harvest of the fruits of your labors from what you sow, sow in the field, first fruits. Also the feast of the end gathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labor in the field. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. See, Joe, that has to be Israel where they had the temple. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. That applies to us today. How do I know? Charlie, are there any scriptures telling us that in the millennial reign, the nations will be coming up to the temple to worship Yahweh? Um, yeah. More than one, aren't there? Yeah. Where's the temple today? Uh, well, that's in the heart of believers or in the assembly of believers. And Yahweh dwells within the temple, right? Yeah. So if there are two or more gathered in his name, there he is. What's he telling us? That's where we gather. So we can go up to the temple anytime two or more gather in his name. Yeah. Why is this so hard to understand? It's not a rhetorical question, folks. Thanks, Charlie. I appreciate it. The church has missed something. Why? I don't question the church's sincerity or their faith or their belief. I question their willingness to study the Old Testament and apply it to the new. They study the new and ignore the old. You can't do that. It doesn't work. Think of it this way. When you were in school, if you had to do a math problem and you just gave the teacher the answer, Usually they wouldn't count that as correct. Why? Because they wanted to make sure you weren't cheating. Well, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's close. Reading nothing but the New Testament is like giving your teacher the answer without doing the homework, the work. The problem itself is the Old Testament. You show me a single passage of the New Testament that actually cites the New Testament. They reference each other. Peter references Paul, et cetera, et cetera, back and forth, but they don't cite each other. They cite the Old Testament. Everything the apostles tell us, teach us, rests on the Tanakh. Everything. And yet today, the traditional church throws it away and claims all you need is the New Testament. That creates an apostasy. Heresies. Heretics. Wrong teaching, period, end of story.
Passover. Passover is the Lord's Supper. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, before the crucifixion, you did Passover to remember Exodus. Now you do Passover to remember the crucifixion. Both cases, there was a Passover. We've done a show on this. Go back and find it. We did a show on the Last Supper. It tells us what day it was. The scripture tells us that it was a Passover. The scripture tells us everything you need to know. You just have to harmonize all four Gospels. When you do that, all the pieces are there. And, and we even surprised Charlie that day. It all, Charlie, once again, just pop your microphone on. I know you remember that show. Oh, yeah, I remember that it show. It was all out of Scripture, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I was loaded with bear, and I was, I was ready to go at you. And but I, I brought you a few little pieces nobody ever off. looks at, didn't I? Yeah, I One about shot off, when so. the women were shopping and where they were. Some small, insignificant passages in other Gospels. But they were talking about the timeline, weren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's all there. It's the glory of Yahweh to hide it. It's glory of kings to dig it out, folks. So, yes, the Lord's Supper is a Passover supper, folks. And he said, do the Lord's Supper, do Passover in remembrance of me now. Not looking forward to me. Remembering Exodus, looking forward to the Messiah. Now you're remembering the Messiah's crucifixion, looking forward to his second coming. Church has another objection to the HRM. It says HRM groups claim that believers are still required to eat clean. The traditional church says Jesus declared all foods clean. That's what Peter's vision's all about. The Hebrew Roots Movement, here again, this is one where they seem to be fairly clear, unanimous. Nowhere does the scripture change the dietary laws. In fact, Peter was still eating clean when he had his vision. And prophecy seems to curse Ephraim as having to eat unclean food for many years in the diaspora. Therefore, we are still supposed to be eating clean. That's what the HRM believes. And again, we find that the church has misunderstood this. They've committed the fallacies of equivocation, false assertion, and appeal to authority. They're just reading things into there that the scriptures do not say. Here, Matthew 15, 1 through 3. Starts here. We all know this one. Uh, Matthew 15, verses 10 and 11. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters your mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. And some of your Bibles has a little note that says, and with these words, Jesus declared all foods clean. That's a scribal note. That's not in the oldest texts. Scribes have added that. But even still, Joe, Joe just, Jesus said, it's not what you eat. It's what comes out of your heart. That's not what he's talking about. He's not even talking about food. Go up a verse. Like Charlie likes to say, if you're going to read a passage, you got to read it 2020, 20 lines before, 20 lines after. So let's go up one. Matthew 15, verse 1 through 3, traditions and, com and commandments. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves break the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions? That's what he's talking about. Jesus was referencing the washing of hands. The Pharisees were saying, you're making your bread unclean because you haven't washed your hands. So the bread going in your mouth made you unclean. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about whether or not you're keeping Torah. The Pharisees said, your apostles are breaking our rules. Jesus said, that's good. You break my father's rules. Now, which one of those two is keeping Torah? 
You think Jesus would have allowed his apostles to break Torah? Nope. Do you think he's con condemning the Pharisees here for breaking his Torah? Yep. Do you think he's talking about food in Matthew 15, verse 11? Nope. He's talking about your heart condition. So why do we misread that passage? Because we want to be able to eat oysters, shrimp, and uh, whatever else we want to eat, catfish. Don't touch my bacon. Yeah, don't touch my bacon. Except don't go to Isaiah 66, 17 then. Acts 10, verses 9 through 16. On that day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about sixth hour to pray. Remember, housetop is their porch in the Middle East. But he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And on it were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the sky. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happens three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. See, God just made all foods clean. Really? Charlie, does that verse say that the creatures on that sheet were unclean? Um, well, it doesn't actually say that. No, it doesn't, does it? But, uh, you know. If you assume that means they're unclean because of Peter's language. Yeah. That's the fallacy of hasty assumption. Well, that's true. You've assumed facts not in evidence, Your Honor. And there's another principle that you have to keep when you're reading scriptures. Mm -hmm. Keep reading. Exactly. Which would bring us to here, Acts 11, 1 through 18. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, the Jews, believers, took issue with him. Jewish believers, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained at length to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came to where I was, and I stared at it, and it was thinking about it, and I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild animals and the crawling creatures and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. This is after the ascension. So if he's allowed to eat whatever he wants, he should be doing that by now. But he's not. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. So we continue. He says, this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea came up to the house where we were staying. And the Spirit told me to go down to them without misgiving. These six brothers also went with me. And these are the men that he's, he's with. And we entered the man's house, and he reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send some men to Joppa, Joppa to have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you have been will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the words of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the spirit gift as he also gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then. 
God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. What's that got to do with food, Joe? You were just told that that vision had nothing to do with food. It was about the Gentiles. God declared the Gentiles clean. Peter just said so. So like Charlie just told you, keep reading. It's got nothing to do with food. Even after the vision, Peter tells you he's still eating clean. Another objection that the church has, traditional church, says HRM groups claim that there are two houses of Israel, the Jews and the lost tribes, house of Judah, house of Israel. Many in the HRM movement also seem to think that they are descendants of the lost tribes and that England or America is the seat of Ephraim and that the other, whichever one the other is, is Manasseh. Manasseh. This understanding is not supported by scripture. Looking into this, we find that not all Hebrew groups movements adhere to this view. There are differences between the Hebrew roots groups with some accepting it, some rejecting it, and others landing somewhere in the middle. Still, there are many passages in the scripture that do seem to support this interpretation. So investigating it, we see that there are ways to interpret scripture that seem to point to the two houses being two nations and two witnesses. And since these prophecies can be interpreted in a way that does not break with the whole of scripture, this would appear to be a matter of personal interpretation or opinion. Therefore, we find this objection commits the fallacy of an appeal to authority, where those who object are appealing to their own opinion as the authority over that of others. Passages in Scripture, Jeremiah 3, 8 through 10. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and prostituted herself also and became as thoughtlessness of her prostitution. She defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares Yahweh. This is the separation of the two, two different nations, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. You will also find them in Jeremiah 31, I think, with the promising of the two um, the new covenant, the renewed covenant. Yahweh calls them by two nations. From that point forward, from this point right here, three eight, Jeremiah 3, 8 through 10, Yahweh refers to them as two nations, two peoples, two um, houses, and two witnesses throughout all of Scripture. Matthew 10, 5 through 7. These, tw um, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, do not go on a road to Gentiles. What? Don't go to the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven has come. Well, that's the Jews, Joe, is it? Are the Jews lost? In Jesus' day, are the Jews lost? Charlie, are the Jews lost at that time? No. Are they lost today? Um, not really. I mean. So who the heck are these lost sheep of the house of Israel? Well. That would be the 10 other tribes. That... Yes, it would. And then in Matthew 15, 23 through 25, Jesus, he not answered them with even a word, and his disciples came up and urged him, saying, send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. 
Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, I came to my house first, the Jews, and they did not receive me. I was sent to the lost sheep. Why? Because the sheep are divorced. Now you're in Romans 7. You have got to look at this as a Torah observant Hebrew or you cannot connect the dots. I'm not telling you that the Holy Spirit won't tell you this, but I'm telling you this much. If the Holy Spirit shows you this, he will first teach you to look at this as a Torah observant Hebrew because you cannot understand what's going on here from the Greek mindset. We've done several shows on the two houses. You might want to go back and find them. Back and found them. That's auto guess there. Finally, last one for today. The church uh, has an objection. The Hebrew Roots Movement claims that the Gentiles must be grafted into Israel to be saved. They claim that the traditional church says it's not what Paul taught. Paul teaches you that this isn't supported by Scripture. Paul says the Gentiles do not need to become Jews. Salvation is for all, Jew and Gentile alike. All are grafted in through Christ. Yes, all are grafted in through the Messiah. I got it. The Hebrew Roots Movement, again, this is a difficult theological issue. And HRM groups seem to be as varied as the church on this one. How do we see it? Different ways to interpret scripture regarding this subject, some causing fewer problems and contradictions than others. We find objections commit the fallacy of appeal to authority, where those who object are appealing to the authority of their own opinions over others. But here's the thing. I don't have your scriptures for you on this one. I didn't get a chance to finish this, but I'll walk you through it. God made his covenant with Abraham. By himself, he swore alone. He transfers that covenant to Isaac, then to Jacob. Jacob passes it to Ephraim, where it remains. Of course, from Ephraim, it ends up on uh, Esau. You know, th there's a little mess right there where Jacob steals it and all. It originally was supposed to be Esau. Jacob takes it. So it goes to Ephraim. That's where it remains. Ephraim is the leader of the house of Israel. The leader of the house of Israel. They're not Gentiles. They're lost Hebrews. Now, our inheritance is the birthright. That birthright passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Israel. Jacob became Israel. Jacob separated the scepter rulership and gave it to Judah, who is the leader of the southern kingdom. But the birthright, the inheritance, Jesus says he's going to share his inheritance, that remains with Ephraim. You must be grafted into the house of Israel to inherit the birthright. That is scriptural truth. Paul explains this in the book of Romans when he tells you, as Gentiles, you are grafted in to Israel. Paul's a Pharisee. Paul knows the Torah. He knows the two houses. He's well aware of it. Moses wrote about it. But this right here, Jacob's dream, this is where Jacob's given the birthright. And we could go to Genesis 48 and a couple of other places. Um, I'll fill that in later. That'll be in our book when we finally get it written and get to it. But you have to be grafted into the house of Israel. Because, you know, said John, we're grafted in through Christ. Yes. Torah teaches that the inheritance is with Ephraim. You're grafted in by Torah. You obey Torah, who is Christ in the flesh. Christ in the flesh is Torah in the flesh is Christ. This concepts. He's still fully a man. Don't get me wrong. He's man as much as I am, but he's also Yahweh. And he's also the word of Yahweh somehow or another. It, it, that's a paradox, not a contradiction. 
We just don't know how to solve that paradox. Not in this side of the of eternity in the flesh. We're finite beings talking about an infinite concept. By definition, we can't understand it. The nearest we can do is come to an analogy. But if you accept the sacrifice of Messiah, that's also part of Torah. You accept his Passover, his blood. There you go. Christ grafted you into the house. You're crossed over. You're born again. I don't understand why this is a tough subject. Somebody somewhere, somehow or another, our pastors have quit reading their Bible. Or they insist on reading it through the blinders of the traditions and teachings of men. Where did that get the Pharisees? It got them condemned as children of Satan by the Son of God, Yahweh in the flesh, staring them right in the face, face to face, telling them, you won't believe Moses. Why do I expect you to believe me? Because Moses wrote about me. The church will tell me, yeah, Moses wrote about the greater prophet coming. Moses also was most more known, rather than the great Messiah coming, Moses is more known for writing about the Torah. And Yeshua is telling you, Moses wrote about So it's a case of, was Moses writing about Torah or about the coming of the Messiah? To which Charlie and I answer, yes. And in a Hebrew mind think, that's exactly what Yeshua expected them to think. Yes, both. But they would not believe him. So why would they believe Moses? And they wouldn't believe Moses. So why would they believe him? Well, that's the same thing that the traditional church has done today. I won't believe the scriptures. So why would I believe Jesus? Because Jesus has told you in the gospels, he affirms everything we've just discussed today. If you're reading it, as a Torah-observant Christian, or a Torah-observant Hebrew, rather, in this case. If you're his disciple, you're a Hebrew. If you're a true disciple of the Messiah, you're a Hebrew. You've crossed over. You've been born again. This is why he asked Nehemiah, said, well, people who think born again is a new covenant concept, you know, a New Testament. Well, then why does Jesus, before the cross, before it's finished, before the new covenant has been established, why is he asking Nehemiah, I think it's Nehemiah, isn't it, Charlie? Yeah, well, yeah. Nehemiah. Nehemiah. All right, anyhow. This is why, why are you a teacher of Israel? You don't know about this being born again thing. He expected him to know. That's because it's in the Tanakh. Grace is in the Tanakh. Faith is in the Tanakh. It's there. It's all there. Anyway, logic helped me through all of this. And when we write the book, we'll expand on it in even more detail with more scriptures and a better under a better explanation of the uh, of the fallacies. And we'll put it in more of a formulaic form so that hopefully each subchapter that Nicodemus, that's who I wanted. Thank you, Aaron. I'm sorry, Charlie. Nicodemus. Folks, I cannot remember names to save my life. Numbers? Nicodemus. Assign everybody a number? Got it. Names, anyhow, we're going to write this thing. Hopefully, we'll get it done here in the near future, next couple, six months, get it proofread and everything, but we're going to write it in such a way that each little subchapter will deal with each of these issues. It can be used to teach yourself, others, whatever. I know that's annoying, folks. I can't help it. Otherwise, I can't teach. Yep, Aaron's got my six. Thanks, bro. Appreciate that. Make sure no creepies sneak on. 
you got tail end Charlie on this column. Talking to Aaron, he understands. He was a grunt. He's got it. All right, that's going to wrap us for today. It's going to wrap us for the year. That's 2023 in the books. Show 331. Um, we won't be back again until the second, I think, is what Charlie told me. Let me just check my calendar again real quick. Yep. Yep. Number two, Tuesday, the second. Um, we, Like I said, we tried to have shows planned for you live. Won't work. Go to the uh, go to the archives and rumble. Pick something out. Go to Facebook. Scroll down. Find one. Replay it. Or, what I suggest: spend some time with friends and family. I'm not a Christmas celebration. You know, I don't. I'm not into the Christmas thing anymore. I'm not into New Year's. I've taught myself don't do that. But I am about family. And this is something my wife is struggling with right now. Well, you know, I I don't want to observe Christmas. How do I not be a bad witness here? Well, I don't know how you handle that individually. Do the best you can. Just don't become pagan Nazi here or pagan police. Don't get too fanatical in separating yourself from the whole world because you think, well, that's pagan. If you do that, you become an Essene. And you're going to end up living like a hermit. This is where, again, Paul can help us. Because if you're going to be away from everything that is unholy, unclean, not set apart, then you have to be taken out of this world. And then if you're taken out of the world, you can't do the job of the Messiah. You can't do his work. You can't do Yahweh's work. You can't be working for the kingdom. So rather than worrying about staying away from everything Christmas, if this is a problem for you, if it's not, I understand. You're still working through it. I got it. But if this is one of these things that's bugging you, do the best you can according to your conscience. Pray. Ask for the Spirit to guide you. Ask for the Father and the Son to guide you. They will. But look for opportunities to explain it to others. Maybe the family notices that you're pulled back from what you've always done your whole life. Explain it gently, a little piece. And then see if they want to know more. Don't try to force this down their throat. When you try to force something down somebody's throat, they spit it back out and throw up. Little pieces. Little drip, drip, drip. Leave them wanting more. That way they'll ask you. And it's harder for them to reject you when they know that they're the one that asked. All right. We love each and every one of you. We've enjoyed this year. We thank you for the opportunity to come to you and share our ways of looking at things with you. Share the things we found. We hope that we'll see you again next year. We hope that we'll be here a year from now. I'm not going to guarantee that. Next September might be sporty. We'll see. Could be wrong. Could come in the spring. I don't know. <laughs> but if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. Share share it with your friends and family. The thumbs up buttons. Talk to Charlie and I and Natasha. Natasha couldn't be here today. Um, AI had to take the day off. So, but she's, uh, she thinks about all y'all too. She, she enjoys being here. Y'all take care of yourselves. Okay. Stay safe. We're looking forward to seeing you back here Tuesday, the second. And in the meantime, if you got spare time, find an old show and listen to it, go to YouTube and look at some of the little sections that Charlie set up for you. So y'all take care, stay safe. We'll see you next year.
Bye-bye.